With that being said, we are going into John chapter 9 today. So we are continuing with our series on the Sermon of John, uh, a series on the book of John. We've been in John for, I don't know, at least half a year, I think. Uh, the past three weeks, we took a detour. We uh, talked about Christmas, and then uh, on New Year's Eve, I talked about the importance of the Word of God and encouraged us to make that more a part of our life in 2024. And then last week, I talked about fasting, the spiritual practice of fasting before our fast. So now we are jumping back into our series on the book of John. Um, we're in chapter 9. We're going to look at the whole chapter today. Uh, it, this, is what, this context is, you know, John chapters 7 and 8, Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of Tabernacles. And in John chapter 10, verse 22, it talks about him being at a different feast, the Feast of Dedication, uh, which is not one of the Levitical feasts, but it's what we commonly hear about today as Hanukkah. Um, so it's, John 9 takes place sometime between these two events. Um, when exactly, we're not sure. Was it, it could have been right after the Feast of Tabernacles or it could have been some other time in between. We're not sure, um, but we're going to look at John chapter 9 today. I'm going to read the whole chapter, and what we're going to do is we are primarily going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. That's where we're going to spend the bulk of our time, and then I'm kind of going to just, you know, kind of run quickly through the rest of the chapter until the very end where Jesus summarizes things and, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap things up there. But we're going to spend the bulk of the message on the first seven verses. But I'm going to read the whole chapter for context. It says this, as he passed by, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, go. Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they asked him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight, and he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. 
The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared uh, the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So, For the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are the disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken through Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. But if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin and you would teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out. And having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of God. Um, Let's go back up to the top here. In verse one, it says, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Uh, Jesus, as he's walking along the streets of of, uh, of, I believe, Jerusalem, uh, he sees this man who was blind, and, and apparently he stopped to observe this blind man. It says that this man was born blind. He was congenitally blind. How they knew this, we don't know, but uh, perhaps they interacted with him. Uh, this man was there begging. Uh, there was nothing for a blind man to do to be able to support himself back in those ancient times, so they resorted to begging. People who were blind or crippled or lame, he was begging. And and as Jesus took an interest in him, I feel pretty 
confident that maybe there was some discussion or, or, or conversation, and they found out that he was born blind. He told them his story, maybe in the hopes of getting more money from them. Um, the disciples noticed that Jesus stops and takes an interest in him, so they bring up a theological question. They take this as an opportunity to ask a theological question. Rabbi, which means teacher. They call Jesus rabbi. Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. Now, in their question, we can see a lot about the theological worldview of people at the time, especially of the people of Israel during that time. And that theological worldview was basically this. Bad things happen to bad people. Bad things happen to bad people. Good things happen to good people. This guy is blind. He was born blind. Therefore, something really, he must have done something really bad. He must be a bad person. We see this in their theology about when Jesus said, it's harder for a rich man to go enter the kingdom of God than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. And the disciples were like, who can be saved then? Because they thought, well, rich people, those are good things happening to them. That must be good. That means they're good people. They do good things. They're not sinners. They couldn't understand this. This was their understanding and their theology at the time. So they said, who sinned? Was it this man who sinned? Now, the question naturally would be, wait, he was born blind. What do you mean, this man? How could he possibly have sinned if he was born blind? Did he sin in the womb? Actually, there are rabbis who discussed this back in the day, this idea of, of sinning in the womb. And, and there is a, the theology that they have come up with of neonatal sinning, pre-birth sinning. One example that's talked about is, is Jacob. Jacob, whose name means deceiver. And if you remember the story, if you know the story, you know, Esau is coming out and being born, his twin brother. And then Jacob's hand comes out and is like gripping onto Esau's heel, basically saying like, I want to come out first. I want to be the firstborn. I want the benefits that come with that. And, and people looked at him and the midwives were like, what a selfish baby. Man, we're going to name him deceiver. You know, Jacob, that was his name. There was this, this idea that you could be sinning even within the womb. That was one thought that they had. The other thought was, Jesus, was it this his man's parents? Was it one of his ancestors that had sinned? Could that be the reason? Now, why would, why would they think this? That the sins of this man's parents could be the reason that God had him be born blind. Now, this is from a misunderstanding of a very popular verse in Exodus chapter 20. In verses 5 through 6, Moses wrote this, You shall not bow down to them, other gods, other idols, or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity, aka sin, of the fathers on the children, to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." Basically, there was a misunderstanding, and actually a misunderstanding perpetuated in the church today too now, that says, oh, look at this. God is saying that when, your parents, when the parents sin, God takes it out on the children for even three or four generations. But the, the thing that they miss here, a very important phrase that they miss here is that it says, to the third and the fourth generation, of those who hate me, of those who hate me. In other words, if your parents are sinning in idolatry, and they tell the kids to worship idols, and the kids, 
out of their own volition, say, yes, we will do that. We will worship idols. And they grow up worshiping idols and they tell their kids to do it. And then their kids continue to do that. God will judge them for that because of their own sin, because they continue to hate God, not because their parents worship idols. If their parents worship idols, but the kids said, no, we will not worship idols, things would have been different for the kids. We see this in Ezekiel chapter 18, when it says, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In fact, in Exodus Exodus 20, that we just read earlier, we see God's heart there. He wants to do good for thousands of generations. That's God's real heart. He wants people to love him, to worship him, to honor him, because his heart is to bless generation after generation after generation. They had this, this misunderstanding from Exodus 20 and other verses that this man's sin could have been caused by his parents. So which one is it, Jesus? Was it this man in the womb sinning, or was it his parents had sinned, or maybe his grandparents? What, is, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, no, it's neither. Neither of these things. It was not that this man sinned, and it was not that his parents sinned. It wasn't either of those things. Now, this is a really important theological concept to understand. That when bad things happen to you, it isn't necessarily because you sinned or because somebody in your family line for generations back sinned. That is not the reason why bad things happen to you. You cannot make a one-to-one correlation like that. Why do bad things happen to people? They happen, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Paul is saying bad things happen in this world because Adam, when he sinned, sin entered into this world and our world became broken. Our world became broken. Death entered into this world. We were not supposed to die. We were not supposed to get sick. There were not supposed to be diseases and things like that. This happened because Adam sinned and sin entered into the world. That is why bad things happen. Now, please know that I am not talking about bad things happening to you because you make a foolish decision. Like, you know, you are terrible to your coworkers. You don't listen to your boss. You don't do your work and you got laid off. You should not then say, God, why did I get laid off? Was it the sin of my great-great-great-grandfather? No, it's because you didn't show up to work. Why did I get into college? It's because you didn't study or didn't do your homework and never went to class, right? I'm not talking about that. Certainly, there are things that we can do, sins that we can commit, foolish decisions that we make that result in bad things happening to us. I'm not talking about somebody who just eats fried food for every meal of every day never exercises, and then one day goes, God, why do I have diabetes? Why did, why did I get sick? Why, why do I have hypertension? That's because of the decisions we make. Direct correlation. But we cannot apply that to everything. Certainly not like the disciples and like people were doing back then. Sin. Bad things happen, generally speaking. There's so much brokenness 
and, 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 and sin in this world and, and disease and sickness, a lot of it is because Adam introduced sin into our world. Sin did not only affect our spirituality in terms of our relationship with God. Adam and Eve were banned from the Garden of Eden. Their relationship with God was broken, but it also affected our biology. This is why every single person from the moment that you are born, you are heading towards death. You're heading towards death. No one should be 105 years old and going, why is my body falling apart? Why am I going to die? Why am I getting sick? Well, because of Adam's sin. We were meant to live forever, but now every one of us is heading towards death. The disciples, they, they made the mistake of Job's friends as well. Job's friends, his three friends, who said, Job, all this bad stuff happened to you because you sinned. Now confess. And Job's like, no, man, I didn't. I didn't. They're like, yes, you did. Confess. Job's like, I've, I have not. I swear to you, I have not. And what happens at the end of the book of Job? God rebukes Job's friends, right? He says, they have not been speaking right about me. That's not because of Job's sin. There was a galactic showdown between Satan and God happening in the heavens, people, things that, things that people were not aware of. But his friends assumed that it was because of their sin. We, um, it's important for Christians to understand we, we, don't, we don't believe in karma. Um, we, we, we live in a world where the brokenness of this world is going to affect each and every one of us. If it's because of a foolish decision, that's one thing. But if it is because of just being in a broken world, we should not lose heart when things like that come upon us. Now, so Jesus tells them, it was not that this man sinned or his parents. Well, then what was the reason? Jesus says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's why this man was born blind. Not because of the sin of his parents, not because of neonatal, prenatal sinning, but because the works of God, so that the works of God could be displayed in him. So that this moment, Jesus could walk by and heal this man of his blindness. Now, I think a very natural question or thought that would come up is, God, isn't that kind of cruel? Really? Are you telling me that this man, I don't know how old he is, his parents said he's of age, means he's at least 13, he's, he has had his bar mitzvah, he's, he's an adult in the eyes of Jewish society, he's not old, though he's a young man, but from his birth, as a child, was not able to see all the suffering and everything that he went through. God, isn't that kind of cruel that, that, that he was born so that Jesus could walk by and heal him in this moment? I, I, I can understand that question coming up. And that could be a very natural question. And, and, and my answer to that would be, no, it's, it's, it's not that simple. It's more complicated than that. I think it's yes and no in some ways. Like I said, this man was born blind. He was congenitally blind because of the sin of Adam. That's a huge part of it. Because sin entered into the world that affected our biology. And for whatever reason, over generations and generations and generations, something happened in DNA that this man inherited. And in his DNA, things were messed up in this area. And he was born congenitally blind because of the sin of Adam. That's why he was born blind. But at the same time, we know that God is sovereign. We know that everything is under the control of God, under the providence of God. God is completely sovereign over all things. And, and, and 
without getting into a deep dive discussion about everybody's favorite party topic of predestination, of you know, how could God be good and all-powerful, but why is there sin in the world, which is a really big discussion. Ultimately, I don't know the answer to that. That's the answer. Nobody knows the answer to that. But we trust in the Word of God that teaches that God is sovereign and that humans are responsible for their actions. But I know this from this passage. What I believe Jesus is saying, though, is that in the sovereignty of God, this man's pain and suffering that came as a result of human sin, as a result of Adam and Eve, humanity rebelling against God, that this man's pain and suffering can ultimately be redeemed, can be redeemed and can even find purpose in Christ, in the plan of God. That this man who was cast aside, who was seen as a beggar, useless in their society, no good to anybody, just there begging people for money, not able to do anything. His parents might have disowned him. Certainly, they didn't look like they were really supportive of him when he was confronting the Pharisees and all these things. That people, no matter what they're going through, no matter their pain and their suffering, no matter how great, in God, their pain and suffering can be redeemed unto the glory of God. Their life in Christ can have purpose. Incredible powerful purpose. John wrote his gospel, this book that we are reading, as a reminder. Why did he do it? He wrote near the end of the book. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Why did John write this book and record all these miracles of Jesus so that the world could know that Jesus is God, so that the world could have their sins forgiven, so that the world would come and have a relationship with God and be restored in their relationship with God and walk with God in the way that they were supposed to. That's why John recorded these miracles, including this miracle in chapter 9 of this man's blindness being healed. Brothers and sisters, this man's pain and suffering, his blindness for 13, 15, or 18 years has been helping people come to believe in Jesus for the past 2,000 years. I believe with all of my heart that when we see him in heaven, and if you go up to him, you say, yo, you were that blind man. Say, all that pain and suffering that you went through, for this one moment when Jesus walked by, was it worth it? I guarantee you he would say it was worth it. In fact, it was the highlight of my life that God could be glorified, that the Son of Man could be glorified, that, he could, that this, my blindness being healed could point to him, to the world, for thousands of years, that this is the Messiah. Countless people have come to know Jesus because of what happened in my life. My pain and suffering brought glory to God. It was absolutely worth it because the purpose of life is to honor God and to bring him glory. That is the purpose of life. In our pain and our suffering, when we're healed, we bring glory to God. In our pain and our suffering, even when we're not healed, that can bring glory to God. God doesn't always heal. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, it talks about him praying to God multiple times that this thorn in his flesh would be removed. We don't know what that thorn was, but most people think it was a physical ailment, but God didn't heal him. What did God say? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. For Paul, he brought glory to God, not through God's healing, but through God's sustenance. 
through God's grace and mercy that helped him keep going, that sustained him even in the pain, uh, in the face of pain and suffering. Brothers and sisters, one day, this pain and this suffering will be no more. That is for certain. For all who put their faith in Jesus, John wrote, the same John wrote in Revelation 21, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. One day, there will be no more pain or suffering. There will be no more congenital disease. There will be no more uh, disabled children being born. There will be no more uh, uh, deformities. There will be no more, no more tears, no more crying. But brothers and sisters, friends, in the meantime, in Adam's world, in this world that sin has broken, our weakness, our pain, our suffering, the things that we experience even at no fault of our own, these are opportunities to display the works of God to the world, to display his power in healing or to display his power in giving us an indomitable hope and trust and faith that God is still good and that the meaning of my life is not just this body and that one day God will restore and make all things new. To be able to trust in God for that. You know, if, if you don't believe in God, if you believe in just simply a random chance universe and we're all just biology and just, you know, we all came out of the primordial ooze, then you know what? We can't go much further than just life stinks. Sometimes life just stinks. None of your friends were born with the serious medical condition that you were born with. Tough. None of your kids, friends had kids with a disability, but you did. Well, that's just too bad. None of your friends got cancer, even though you work out, you eat well, but you did. Well, that's just life. Life is unfair. Suck it up. Deal with it. We're just biology. We're just out of the primordial ooze, and some people get dealt a worse hand than others, and that's all there is to it. But, but in the Bible, God says that, yes, life is filled with brokenness. Life is filled with pain. Life is filled with suffering. But in Christ, when we connect ourselves with God, when we align our lives with the purposes that God has made us for every single life, no matter how much suffering and brokenness and pain there is, can bring glory to God, which is what we were made to do in the first place. Everybody can live a life of incredible purpose, even if their start may be rougher than some others. You have heard, I've talked before about Johnny Erickson Tata. You may have heard about her. She's in her um, she's in a wheelchair here because she's a quadriplegic. At the age of 17, she dove into, into, off of a pier into a, into a pond or a lake and didn't see a submerged pole, wooden pole that was under there. She hit her head, and she's paralyzed from the shoulders down for, for 60, 70 years or so now. But she, rather than thinking that her life was over, she has used her weakness and her pain to become a source of hope and life for others. She started a ministry called Johnny and Friends. They refurbished, donated wheelchairs 
and they provide that for people around the world, and they share with them the message of the gospel, the, the, her ministry, Johnny and Friends, it says there on their ministry website, we envision a world where every person with a disability finds hope, dignity, and their place in the body of Christ. She has taken her pain and her suffering and realized that this can be redeemed unto the glory of God, and this can bring hope into the lives of so many other people. I've shared before about um, Nick Vujicic, uh, Nick Vujicic, uh, the Australian uh, person. He's a Christian who was born without any limbs, no arms, no legs. It doesn't get much rougher than that in terms of a start in life. But this day, he's an evangelist. He goes around the world sharing the gospel, telling people about how life is more than just having arms and legs. And no matter what you're experiencing, what hardship you are facing, that you can have purpose, you can have um, uh, the, the Spirit of God within you, and you can live a life of meaning, no matter what kind of pain and suffering you are born with. Brothers and sisters, and it's, it's not, just, not just those of us who are born with these types of pains and sufferings and disabilities, but, but God, is, God is also seen. He is glorified in the way that we care for those around us with pain and suffering in their lives. He receives the glory as well. My, my, you guys know this, I've shared before about my mom when she uh, received a diagnosis of Parkinson's 10 years before she passed away. She passed away a year ago, so about 11 years ago. And I, and I watched her slowly break down over the years from um, a normal life to more and more random falls when she's walking out in the street and getting calls from the emergency room saying, is this your mother? She's here with a laceration on her head to not being able to just take care of life and live on her own any, anymore and needing to move in with my brother or with me. And then the falls that came, the broken bones and, and the walker that she needed to use and eventually being wheelchair bound. And then not only physically breaking down, but mentally breaking down to the point where you know, I never forget the first time when I sat down and I talked with her and I was talking to her, you know, mom, this or that. And she looked at me like she didn't know me and she didn't, she didn't remember who I was. And if you've never experienced that before, it is one of the most shocking things when somebody who you count as somebody who loves you so much in this world, somebody so important to you feels like they don't know who you are. There is a, a, a death that takes place. this dying inside that happens. And then eventually becoming, seeing my mother become bed bound and, 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 and the bed sores break out, horrible, terrible bed sores. And I'll tell you, it was, it was a lot of work for, for me and my brother and my, my wife, Christine, and, and the caretaker that we had caring for her. And at times it was really, really hard, really hard. The years that she lived with us, multiple trips to to seeing doctors and physical therapists and, and, and wound care specialists and, and trying to treat bed sores. And no matter what you do, no matter how much you move her, no matter what, how nice of a specialized air mattress you get, they keep spreading and, and, and dealing with all these things and seeing a loved one break down before your very eyes. It was so hard. But I remember Dr. Ryan, our, one of our provisional elders in our church, when he would pray for me and he would pray for my mom throughout the years, one thing that he regularly prayed 
was he would pray this. He would pray, God, thank you so much for Mrs. Wang. My, my mother, my last name's Wang. Thank you so much for Mrs. Wang. That even right now, in her condition, she, she is serving God through how her son, Ulysses, is growing by serving her, by caring for her. Even in her state right now, she is doing the work of God. And he would tell me, he would tell me, Ulysses, you're changing. And I'm a, you know, I'm like a church planter, right? I'm like a, let's go get them. The kingdom of God, storm the gates of, of hell. And, you know, let's do this for the Lord. Ra rah, 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 rah. And that's the kind of personality that I had. But Dr. Ryan, he was praying. He was saying that through my mother, my mother was serving God by giving me an opportunity to change and, and, and to become more patient, to slow down, more loving towards her, more tender towards her, and then maybe even towards other people. He prayed, and he thanked God that my mother, in her brokenness and pain and suffering, was serving God by serving me, by giving me an opportunity to grow through serving her. Brothers and sisters, friends, this is why we need to not only carry our own burdens because they give glory to God. But this is why we need to carry one another's burdens, because that gives glory to God. And this is why we need to let others carry our burdens as well, because that also brings glory to God. People who are suffering and in pain are not a burden. They are a much needed part of the body of Christ so that we can all grow in holiness and patience and love and kindness together as one community. Friends, our pain and our suffering brings glory to God. They are an opportunity for us to shine the light of Christ to the world around us. What are you carrying today? What pain, what suffering do you have? Have you been carrying? That is an opportunity through the grace of God to bring him glory. Going on, Jesus says in verse 4, he says, We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Now, in verses 4 and 5, when Jesus says, that we must do the works of him while it is day, night is coming. I think what he's saying is, is basically this. I think what he's saying is that, you know, um, it, he only has three years of public ministry before he goes to the cross, before night comes, so to speak, and before he ascends and returns to the Father. These three years are a really important, special three years in redemptive history that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John capture here to show us that he is the Christ. And, 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 and this is the time while he's here. It doesn't mean we can't do the work of God after he has gone up to be in heaven. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we are the light of the world. We continue on with his work, right, in shining his light to this world. But what he's saying is that during his public ministry, it is a special time to show people that he is the Messiah, that God's anointed Messiah has come 
So they must do those works while he is with them. And then he does this thing where, okay, so he, he spits into the ground, makes mud, and he puts it on this blind beggar's eyes. Why? Why? Why does he do this? This is weird, right? This is kind of weird seeming. We've seen Jesus oftentimes just heal at a word, with a word or heal by laying hands on people. He's also done other things like he's spit and he's put his fingers in people's ears and he's done things like that. But this is one of those weird ones, right? Where he spits into the ground, makes mud and puts it on this man's eyes. Now there's all sorts of theories out there. Some people have said, well, back then some people thought that saliva, saliva of righteous people has healing properties. If that's true, and if I'm a righteous person, then you'll want to sit in the front row as I, as I preach, because I know, you know, I see it sometimes with the spotlight, you know, like, a, but I, I, I don't know, maybe, I don't know about that. Some people have said that maybe it's an allusion to Genesis 1 and 2, when God created Adam out of the dirt of the ground, and then he breathed into the dirt. Maybe, 5 out of 10, 4 out of 10, I don't know, not super convinced. Some others have said that Jesus did this, one of the reasons is, he specifically made mud because it was against the law of the Sabbath. Because according to the Pharisees, one of the things you cannot do is knead dough. And making mud is like qualifies as kneading, right? So children, no mud pies on, on the Sabbath, right? No making any of that. And, and not, a lot of their laws were made up by people and were not from God. But Jesus here, in, in some people said that he's doing this in order to show for this confrontation with the Pharisees to be heated up, to show them that, no, I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am greater than the Sabbath. Pretty good. Seven or eight out of 10, I would say, when you look at the rest of the context of this passage. Uh, personally, here's one thing that I think that is, I think, one of the reasons that he does this. One reason I think that he does this is simply because this man had to wash it off. I think that's why he did this put the mud on the man's eyes so that this man would need to wash it off. And what did he do? He said, go, wash in the pool of Siloam. And then he goes through the trouble of telling them that the word Siloam means scent. That's what it means. It means scent. It was called that because the water was sent from the outside of the city. It was channeled in from a spring called Gihon. And that's where water comes in. I think what Jesus what Jesus is doing here is, is he's telling this man to go and wash in the pool of scent. What he's saying here is that salvation, and, and ultimately not just physical healing, but the healing of our souls come when we trust in the one that God has sent, the one that the Father has sent, the Messiah, the sent one who is Jesus, and we wash ourselves, our sins are washed off through trusting in the blood of his sacrifice upon the cross. Revelation chapter 7, it says, Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes? And from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I think there's a strong case that can be made that Jesus, this is a living metaphor, Jesus is saying true washing, the washing of our sins, true forgiveness comes when you trust in the one that God 
has sent. You have to trust that. And this man had faith in Jesus to go and try this. He knew his name was Jesus. He had heard about Jesus. Everybody had heard about Jesus by this point. And he heard about him, that he was a healer. So he went. I mean, if he didn't trust him, if he didn't have faith, he could have just been like, man, what are you doing? Oh, gosh, I hate the smell of saliva, right? You know, like, I hate the smell of my own saliva even. I mean, gosh, get this off. Get this crazy guy away from me. He could have slapped him away. He could have said, somebody get me some water. It's probably what He didn't have to go to the, to the pool of Siloam and travel through the city of Jerusalem as a blind person trying to get to this place. He could have just grabbed some water from wherever and washed it off. But no, he didn't. He went to the place. He made his way to where Jesus told him to go, and he did exactly as Jesus said. He went to the place, to the pool of scent. He washed, and he was healed. He was able to see. I think that this is why Jesus healed in this way. Now, the rest of this passage, which I'm going to just kind of breeze through right now, it basically preaches itself in so many ways. It is the, um, what we see is the continuing tension that is building uh, between the religious leaders and Jesus. We see this living metaphor here of this man who was blind but now can see, and his understanding and knowledge of Jesus seems to be clarifying becoming more clear as these conversations take place. Jesus, to a prophet, to this man sent from God, he can see. But these Pharisees and religious leaders, those who claim that they can see, that they understand the knowledge of of God through the law of Moses, are actually the ones who are blind and are hardening in their blindness against Jesus. Most of the religious leaders did not believe that Jesus really healed this man, or they thought that he was still a sinner. Some of them thought that he truly was good, like, you know, remember Nicodemus, right? Chapter 3, what did Nicodemus say? Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God because nobody could do the miraculous signs that you're doing unless he were sent from God. So there are some who are like on team Nicodemus saying, hey, hey, let's give this guy a chance, but they got overruled. Team crucify him eventually won. We can see that, right? The Pharisees even said at one point in verse 24, they said to the man who had been healed, give glory to God. Tell us what he did. How did he do this? Give glory to God. Those are the same words that Joshua said to Achan in the book of Joshua when he stole things from um, uh, uh, Jericho and he hid them under his tent. And the Israelites began to lose in battle. And God revealed that he was the one who stole things. And Joshua said to him, give glory to God. What did you do? The Pharisees are saying, basically, stop lying. (laughs) Tell the truth. How did this man do what he did? Is it a trick? Were you never really blind? Or did he call on Baal or Beelzebub to heal you? How did he do it? What did he do? We see their increasing hardness of heart, the increasing blindness of these people. At the end here, Jesus finds this man again. And he says, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answers, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. I think there's um, something a little bit deeper here. Jesus isn't saying, you know, I'll tell you who he is. You're looking at him right here, and then the man believes. 
Jesus says, you have seen him. I think he's again playing with this idea of blindness. That you who were blind, actually because of your faith, because you went and washed as I told you to, because you believe that I am more just than just a man, but I'm the sent one from God, you have been able to see. You saw me at that point of faith. Through faith, you saw me. And this man bows down and believes in Jesus. And then he says, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you'd have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Friends, this is an enacted parable that Jesus is doing here. As he said earlier in John chapter 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Friends, what this, going back to verse 1 even, it says that Jesus saw the blind man. Jesus went to the blind man. I think that's meaningful. There was no way that the blind man could go to Jesus. Jesus had to go to him. What this is saying is that we, humanity, in our sin, in our brokenness, could never pursue God. We could never find God. We can never earn our way up to heaven or be in right standing with God. No, in our brokenness of sin, we were blind. We were utterly cut off from God, expelled from Eden. God had to come to us, the sent one of God, Jesus came to us. And, and if we will humble ourselves, if we will humble ourselves and be able to say, and be willing to say, you know, I don't see. I don't know. I, 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 I don't know the means. God had to come and reveal his son to me. And that is the way of salvation. And we trust in God's word that the blood of Christ shed upon the cross is the only means of being washed of our sins and having a relationship with God again, and averting the punishment, the judgment of God, we experience true life. We begin to see. We begin to see life as we truly ought to. We begin to walk with God. However, however, if we think that, you know, I can see. I know what I'm doing in life without God. I have a plan. I've got things figured out. I have my life goals. I think I'm doing okay for myself. I've got, I've got things figured out. Thank you very much, God. The Bible says that you think you see, but that actually is blindness. And you are walking down the path of the Pharisees. Brothers and sisters, this, you know, I feel like this is when Jesus here in verse 39, if, there were, if this were a documentary or if we could see the film, this is when Jesus turns to the camera. And he says, for judgment I came into the world. He says, those who are blind will see. Those who claim they can see will remain in blindness. Friends, will you, will you trust in God? Would you put your faith in God? God sent his only son into this world so that your eyes can be opened so that you can see truly what life is about, so that you can be restored in your relationship with God, so that you can walk with Him and have a relationship with Him. I'm going to invite the worship team up at this time.
Let's stand together as we respond to the word of God.